text for today comes from Luke 21, 31 through 34. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided to you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourself that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thanks, Tim. And uh, in case you're wondering, Tim did shower, and so, you know, if you want to, like, sit by Tim, you know, um, make him feel welcomed uh, at part of our church, that would be really great. Um, So he doesn't have to sit alone. But maybe some of you like to position yourselves near the exits. I get it. Anyway, if we haven't met yet, my name is Johnny, especially as we talk about money. Um, But um, hey, we're welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, But hey, some of you might not know, we have, uh, I don't know, I think we have 30 uh, students right now at a weekend retreat called Vineyard United and the different youth leaders there. And so they're uh, having their last morning session as we speak. And so um, that's just a, it's, it's, uh, uh, Vineyard United has a special place in my heart because a team of I, we helped uh, create that and get that started. And uh, it's a transformative weekend, I know, for a lot of our teens. Uh, God just shows up in those kind of atmospheres. So can we just start off by just praying for them and, um, you know, uh, just that God would use that time to just change the trajectory of their life. And so, God, we thank you for uh, our, just our students and Ricky's leadership and all the volunteers um, staff or just a part of that that uh, would be willing to spend a whole weekend just because, you know, young people's lives matter. And uh, they have, you know, carved out a, a space to, for students to encounter you and encounter the good news of the kingdom. And, and I'm thankful that uh, we get to do that with 15 other vineyard churches that are represented in this a weekend retreat, and so God, would you would you do a work among them, and and it would be a propeller uh, for them for the rest of their life. Uh, I pray it would be um, just a moment that they could look back on and just say, like, I know that I know that I encountered God, um, experienced His goodness. It's something that shaped and transformed my life. And so we pray for them. We pray for our teaching time this morning, God. We just pray, Holy Spirit, would you lead our time? Would we have soft hearts to to be willing to just, uh, just hear what you have to say, uh, that you have the best for us, and that we want to align ourselves and align our lives with you. I pray for our kids and, uh, as they encounter you, too. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, everybody knows what tonight is, right? Anybody care? <laughs> any, any Chiefs fans? Anybody, who's rooting for the Chiefs? You know, some of you, all right, you Swifties, good job. Um, who's rooting for the 49ers? All right, who doesn't care? <laughs> wow. Okay, we've got a good balance, but most people don't care. Um, how many are excited for the commercials? Are you commercials, a couple of you? Yeah, uh, you know, so uh, just thinking through this and preparing uh, for this sermon, uh, I don't know if you guys caught this, but, you know, with commercials, you know, uh, Super, you know the Super Bowl is known for its commercial. Um, and did you guys, I don't know if you caught this, that what it cost for a 30-second commercial at the Super Bowl. Did you guys catch that? It's $7 million. 
for 30 seconds. Like, just take your mind around that for a minute. Uh, that it costs $7 million for a 30-second commercial. And uh, I mean, they, and I don't think they have a shortage of people wanting to do that. Um, you know, I, I guess it works, right? That if, if people are willing or companies are willing to do that, that it somehow is uh, beneficial and worth it. And, and in a business sense, right, you got to spend money in order to make money, in a sense. And so, uh, but if you think about that, why would some companies spend that much, invest that much for 30 seconds? Well, at some point, right, they're, they're trying to influence you in some way, right? It, it boils down that they're going to try to influence you to buy something, to vote for something, to bet on something, to visit their website, their social media, or whatever. The, the key word, though, is they're trying to influence you to a specific behavior. And I'm, gonna, I'm using the word influence in a nice way, um, because as you see, uh, it's, it's more like manipulate you into a certain behavior. And apparently, it works. So in, one of that, in that article I read about you know, it costing $7 million, uh, so Super Bowl I uh, in 1967, uh, a 30-second commercial cost $37,000. Um, now, again, there's a lot uh, a difference in probably viewership um, from those years. But there has been a lot that's changed in the last 50 to 100 years when it comes to advertisement and just the way of life. And it's, and it's actually formed our culture in a way that has shaped our hearts. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this series is matters of the heart is, is what we're looking at is looking at these cultural things that have shaped our hearts and just even shaped the way we look at life. And so I'm going to really briefly kind of go through three major shifts that have happened over the last 50 to 100 years. For some of you, this is a little bit of a history lesson, maybe some sociology, a psychology. Um, if you, just stick with me, and I'll, I'll, I want you to kind of see this progression that we've gone over the last um, 50 to 80 years. In his book, Ruthless, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Kummer goes through this a little bit more detail, but I kind of want to highlight, again, these three major shifts. Uh, we've gone from a need-based economy to a desire-wants-based desire economy. Um, Paul Missouri, he was of the Lehman Brothers, he says this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. This is, again, this is early 20th century of just what, how this, this need to shift our different mindset. And so uh, if, you, if you ever had the opportunity uh, to ask maybe your grandparents or your, even maybe your great-grandparents for some of you, like what they got for Christmas. Have anybody like uh, figured any of that out? Have you ever asked that question? I, asked that, I remember asking my, I think it was my grandma, and even my mom, like what did you guys get for Christmas? You know, it was like fruit and a handmade dress was like the two things that you would get for Christmas. Like just think about what all we get our kids around Christmas. Now, like, this isn't to shave anybody, like, just from VR headset. Like, just imagine you sitting next to your great-grandma and, like, just comparing and contrasting their Christmases and what, how it's just totally shifted and changed our culture. It's very much about you just bought the things that you needed, right? And you just didn't spend a lot of money on anything extra, but now we have a whole economy based on desires and once. And so that has then, the, the end goal of that 
was to make consumption as a way of life. That's been, that's been another shift. Um, I'm gonna, another economist, his name is Victor Lebeau, says this. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures upon the individuals to conform to safe and acceptable, uh, accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food serving, his hobbies. So we've gone from this shift, right, of, of just uh, consumption, to consume, to consume, to consume. And, and it doesn't matter um, what it is, uh, it's just consuming as a way of life. And consuming before even things um, are need to be replaced. Like uh, one of the advertisements you see a lot of, and it includes Patrick Mahomes doing something, it's like every year you get to, you know, change in your phone, right? Even before, it doesn't matter what it is, so you can just always have the latest and greatest. It's about consumption. And so then how do you influence or how do you go from a, a needs-based culture to a desires-based culture? How do you influence people from, for, to have a consumption way of life? It actually is a shift in advertising. It's a shift. Um, there's been a, a drastic shift in the way we advertise. And I don't know if you've done this before. Uh, maybe someone from our older generation would be able to, to, to point to this or remember this, that ads and papers used to be really simple. It used to be like just words about like quality, and it's like, hey, this thing's gonna last you a long time. It's whatever, it's better, like the Ford truck is better than the Chevy truck. You know, there's, there's just very logical explanations about just quality, logical thinking of what is the most reasonable thing to buy. And if you just think about where we are as, uh, as, as what we think about commercials, it's like now it's, you just put a very, um, not, uh, how do I want to say this appropriately? A lady with not very many clothes on, right, to promote an, a, a website to hamburgers to anything, there's been a pretty drastic change in that kind of mindset. Something that's very rational to now it kind of seems what it's very irrational. And, and that's actually been somewhat strategic. What I'm going to argue is the third shift uh, in, that's happened in the last 50 to 100 years is advertising as propaganda. If you're not familiar with that word propaganda, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share just here's um, based on if you just did a Google search of what is propaganda. Hey, this is what uh, they would say. Uh, propaganda refers to information, ideas, or messages that are spread to influence people's opinions, beliefs, or behaviors in a particular direction. It often involves using persuasive techniques to promote a specific agenda, ideology, or viewpoint. And they have some statistic or some specific criteria that makes it propaganda. It goes through appealing to certain emotions and feelings, use of symbols and imagery, repetition and conditioning, appeal to identity and group membership, and a manipulation of information. Do you can see how do you guys see how like commercials align with all of those, with logos, with repetition, with slogans, with songs, uh, group identity? This is all the different things that mark what we would say advertising. The interesting thing about propaganda and these sorts of things is this is what the Nazis used 
to spread their ideas and their ideology. Was they, they used the idea of Freud, if you're familiar with Freud, and his research is he basically concluded that, that most of us, or all of us as humans, we, we don't make decisions or behaviors out of rational decisions. That what he discovered in his research is that we have these unconscious drives that make us decide certain things. That, that in a lot of it's connected to emotions. And so what the Nazis used was the two big emotions of I want and fear and their messaging and symbols and that sort of thing to sway and persuade a whole country to do some pretty horrible things. Now, it's interesting that Freud, the guy who did the studies to discover all these things, his nephew, um, uh, let me get his name, uh, what was his name? Edward Bernays, he's known as the father of American advertising. So this nephew of Freud took these similar concepts and he brought them into advertising to that sort of thing. And so if you think about the shift that's happened, um, if you think about uh, the way our culture works, is all of us see anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day. Just think of that for a little bit. So 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day, and most of them are aimed at a uh, specifically at our unconscious drives a different part of our brain. And if you, get, if you like brain science, which you know, I like, because at least I use something for my biology degree from Ohio State, um, somehow I could tie it to this stuff because it all kind of lines up. Um, but it just, it, it targets a specific part of your brain. So the, the prefrontal co uh, cortex of your brain is about rational and decision making. And, and that doesn't get developed until you're in your mid 20s. That's why your teenagers make really stupid mistakes. It's just their brain is not fully developed, all right? But this targets more of your, uh, what you call your like central part of your brain. It, it deals with the, the um, you know, your fight and flight reflexes. And, and out of that, if you tie into some emotional things, these unconscious drives, we tend to make decisions. And then it influences, influences us to believe that and find fulfillment and happiness or to protect ourselves. That means that fulfillment and happiness could be bought or acquired or accumulated. Security can be purchased and protected from mayhem like me, right? <laughs> Again, like I said, sex can sell anything from cars to cheeseburgers, from Axe body spray to do domain websites. Just think about identity and belonging. I'm a Harley guy, right? Nobody says I'm a Honda guy, right? It's, I'm a Harley guy. Or if you remember the Mac and PC commercials, I'm a Mac. I'm a PC, I'm cool, you're not, those types of things. And it just, it's made this, again, this influenced us and shaped us. The more we have, the happier you'll be. Consume and you'll be satisfied. The lie is over and over again communicated. More money or more stuff will make you happier, satisfied, and you will find the good life. The question is, are we more happier as a culture? Are we more satisfied? as a culture? Are we content with the stuff that we have? And studies have shown over and over again that no, that as a culture we, we aren't. We aren't growing in satisfaction and contentment. We're actually going down uh, despite what we're going on. And I think just generally the sense that I wrestle with with some of this, the sense I think a lot of us do is there just tends to be a general, um, what I call just a sensation of, of lack. I'm just lacking that one thing. If I, if I could just get this, 
If I could just have this. And I, and I think we, we tell our story about our, like in ourselves that if we just had this, then we would, be, we would finally get it. We, we, that, that contentment, that satisfaction, it's just out of reach, and we keep chasing it. Now, what I'm not suggesting here is not like communism, socialism, some kind of other ism. I'm not suggesting we become hippies and like move to Athens, you know, and do that thing, <laughs> all right? What, what, I, what I really want to get at is part of my job, I think part of our job is, is to help us to discern like the cultural messages around us. Does that make sense? Is discern what is there, like what is it doing? So like, again, I, I actually, we're going to get ahead of ourselves, but part of your application is like watch the commercials tonight and you'll begin to see, oh, they're trying to use this emotion to influence me. And you just start, like, make a game out of it. How many use fear that try to make you scared? How many use sex? Because that's a, it's a, one of our drives. How, how many use, like, even if it's, like, dish soap? Like, dish soap will change your life. Like, you get this dish soap, it has the bubblies, and it can make you, uh, your life transformed, whatever, right? This new product, it's just, it's one thing away, and you'll find... So again, one of, this, one of the reasons I talk about this is to show, hey, you are being formed. We say this a lot. Uh, you are being formed by something or someone. And I think part of our uh, role as followers of Jesus is to begin to recognize what is forming and shaping our hearts uh, and these sorts of things. And that's what we've done with these Matters of the Heart series is, is looking at specific things. And we'll look at a couple others later on in the year of how these things are shaping us and forming us and becoming the people that we are. And so we're looking at, and the answer is always going to be, what, what is the way of Jesus? Because some of this, yes, is a cultural moment that our, our culture of American culture is shaping us. But some of these things have been going on for thousands and thousands of years. It's, it's the same things that all humans and us are, are striving for. It's security, life, the good life, and that sort of thing. And so we want to orient our, ourselves around the way of Jesus. And so we're going to kind of end our uh, Matters of the Heart money series. So take a deep breath. After this week, you know, go spend how, your money however you want, you know, or do whatever. But, um, but I think it's, it's important just to kind of continue on what Jesus talked about last week. We're just going to kind of finish that section of Scripture that Jesus said. And if you remember, um, Jesus just made this, this statement about reality. One's life, one's zoe, is not in the abundance of his possessions. And so what we're going to see here is both propaganda plus greed, right, is really what's sabotaging what we are truly after, this good life. Or as the Mandalorian would say, this is not the way, right? Um, for you Star Wars fans. And, and uh, I get it. Maybe, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're watching online. And, and maybe you approach this, this stuff with some suspicion. And, you know, I understand. But, again, um, what, what's been interesting about all this and even some research is, you know, it, I, I love when scientific research, like, backs up what Jesus' claims are. Isn't that always neat? Like, it, it's always... Like, yeah, come on, like, this thing is truth. And if you, if you go through, like, some of the science, like, scientific research shows, again, more money and more possessions doesn't lead to the good life. There's been studies that have shown that, that yes, having, having some accumulation of money to a certain point does make your satisfaction in life, but eventually it just, like, tops off and then actually goes down the more money you make, that you can become more discontent. 
Uh, there's all different types of research and different things that will just back up the claims of Jesus. And, um, and so I think it's worth noting that, that all of this, uh, Jesus' way to doing living is, is the way we want to orient our lives around. So here we are. We're going to pick up again with what Jesus started out in Luke 12, uh, verses 31 and 32. This is where we left off last week. He said, but seek his kingdom to seek after, to investigate, to get to reach to a bottom conclusion, or, or even desire the kingdom. And these things, which we, he referred to earlier about food, clothing, the things you need, will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. And, and so where do we go from there? Let's continue on. Like, how do we do this? Like, how do we make more of the kingdom a part of our life? And what we're going to see here is Jesus actually gives us some practices, some commands, some things that we can actually do to experience more of the kingdom. He says this, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, no moth destroys, for your treasure is there your heart will be also. So we see in this from Luke 12, uh, this whole section of scripture is like, it's almost like a typical way Jesus taught. So usually we start off with some guy in a crowd asking Jesus a, an important question. Jesus responds with a question that he doesn't answer. He usually makes a statement about reality, like this is how the world works. He usually backs it up with a parable, like this weird story that leaves people like that doesn't make sense. And then he explains it to his disciples and then he leaves them with some practices to implement in their life. It's like, this is, this is stereotypical Jesus and how he taught. And you can see this pattern pretty frequently in the, in the gospel, specifically in Luke. And so at the very end, he, he, he lists some practices, some like things that you can do in your power to make sure, right, this idea about greed, to warning of greed, that you can avoid off this thing of greed. And he, he talks about selling your possessions in giving to the poor. And why I'm going to talk about this, we talk a lot about practices here, is because practices are these things that we do in our power to position ourselves to encounter God's presence. Because here's the thing. I want you to be aware of something. You cannot change yourself. Like you, with your willpower, I mean, you might be able to do a few things in your willpower to change. But the things that really change us the things that really make us to become more like Jesus come when we encounter the presence of God in our life. I mean, that's, this, is, this is the thing of the gospel. It's, it's you, the good news of the gospel is you can't change yourself, but God's presence will. And if you encounter God's presence in your life and you organize your life around where you can position yourself to experience that, it'll shape and change your life. And you, your focus will be on Jesus and you'll become more like him. And so these things, when we talk about practices, these are things we do in our effort to position ourselves to experience that presence and to experience more of the kingdom breaking into our life. You guys follow me? The practices are a means uh, uh, to an end. I like this uh, one definition. It's, it's these are conduits of grace that flow through our lives. It's, again, it's a, a means to an end. It's, these are invitational. These are not like spiritual achievements that you do that, make God, that makes God love you more, all right? Let's be clear. These aren't like, you don't get a, a grade on these. You don't like get on God's honor roll, okay? These are things that we do, um, again, that, that uh, position ourselves to experience more of God in our life. 
And why practices are important, I want to just do this. As one Bible commentator pointed out, that it's not always our allegiances that create behaviors, but it's behaviors that create allegiances. Do you guys get me? There's, there's this essence of, we, we do talk a lot about the heart, right? And that's where we always start. That's where Jesus always started. He started with the heart. He's, he's looking at what is your heart allegiant to, and then out of that should work it out practices. But at the same time, there should be also practices that also affect our heart. Does that make sense? I'm going to break this up a little bit. You'll understand in a little bit. So these things are what we call counterformational practices. And the first one we see here, I'm going to call the practice of simplicity. See, Jesus at the thing, he's telling his disciples to sell your possessions. How's that feel? I don't like this command. I'm going to be real honest. I don't like selling stuff. Because I'm like, what if I want it later on? I'm like, what if I want to use that in like a year? What if I need that in like six months? Like, what if I want that? But Jesus is, is, is trying to get out is, is a form of simplicity in your life that makes space for what really matters. Uh, I love this definition of, of Richard Foster. He's a, he's a well-known Christian author and theologian, and he's, he's written books on these practices. And he defines simplicity as this. Simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. Both are necessary. Simplicity begins in a single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness. My English teachers in high school would be very proud that I said that word and without messing up. And which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour and luxury. It's the ability to be content with the simple and profound. It brings freedom from our anxiety about things and our obsession with things. What I like about simplicity, this practice of simplicity, to understand this in the the context of, you know, even first century Judaism is, like, they didn't have a lot of banks. They didn't have the stock market as a way to, like, grow their wealth or security, that most of that came from accumulating stuff. And often in their homes, they'd have a special room where, where they would put their, their possessions. So in the case they needed it, they could sell those sorts of things. But um, Jesus is like looking at a way of lifestyle where, again, it's, it's creating this simplicity in the things that we have. Again, it's about focus, this inner focus that you can focus on the things that truly matter. Jared Boyd, again, I've quoted him a couple times in his book, Finding Freedom and Constraint. He says, see, the goal of focusing our attention is so that we, we might see clearly. The object of our ultimate attention is God's invitation to a loving relationship that leads to union with God. We are not pursuing simplicity for the sake of becoming someone who lives simply. We are pursuing simplicity so that we might see more clearly the love and the work of God in our lives. So there's two important pieces of simplicity. It's, it's an inner focus, and then just arranging our lives, our lifestyle, around that inward focus. You guys with me? Like, it's arranging some certain things in our life uh, that, that makes the important things the important things. If you've been following along, maybe some of this will, this, maybe this will drop, but I don't care. Anyway, um, you know, there's all this news about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. I mean, if, like, you open, I don't know, any news thing, they have something about this, 
right? And, but you would see there's asking Travis all kinds of questions about Taylor Swift. Is he proposing? All sorts of things. Like, is he going to the Grammys? Is, uh, there's all these, this noise. But if you watch Travis a little bit, what is he, he's, he's organizing his life. There's a system with practices and traveling days. He, he keeps saying, I'm, I only got one ring in mind right now. I'm all focusing on one thing, and that's the Super Bowl. Like, he's trying, again, to push out all the noise, and he's, he's got this lifestyle that's trying to make sure his inner focus is on one thing. In this case, it's winning the Super Bowl. And here's the thing about simplicity. It's that sort of thing. It's, it's using and looking at our possessions, our way of life, the way even our social obligations, and saying, how can I use this to make sure my inner focus stays on what's really important? And Jesus is saying, the first thing is to seek. That inner focus should be about the kingdom and pursuing that. That's what it means. And so how can your lifestyle reinforce that inner focus? Because here's the thing. There's all these things pulling at our attention and our focus constantly. All different things that are trying to get that inner focus moved into direction away from his kingdom. A lot of that comes in fear, and, and, and even what you alluded to before, it's, it's those things that we think about, food, clothing, even those sorts of things, and so it's, it's keeping that focus there. And so, so what am I advocating here? What am I trying to get to us? I'm not necessarily, you know, talking about minimalism here. Um, you know, Jesus doesn't give us, like, certain commands, like, if you have nine pairs of shoes, you know, that's okay, but ten, like, that's enough. You need to sell that 10th pair. You know, you need to get rid of them. Like, he doesn't, leave, he doesn't like put all these constraints on it. You guys with me? So it may mean different things for different, for different of us. Like, if, like for farmers, right, there's just a lot of things you need in order to farm. But for, for all of us, like I would say um, most of us, if you just think about your house, like think about how many things are in our house. Just accumulation of things. The, I read um, in this, the statistic was that each house, the average has 300,000 items in it, in every house. I'm pretty sure that, bot, that like the Barbie dream house that I put together had roughly about that many items. Um, and it gets all over our house. But just think about just our, the, the number of things in our, in our homes and I'm not like shaming, but just like, and, and what they've shown is, is clutter always equals stress. They, they, they've done studies on moms uh, and even looking at cortisol levels when they are engaged in clutter and those things, that, that anxiety spikes, uh, stress spikes, and it's just by the appearance of lots of things. And so the, the challenging question is, I'm not gonna challenge you to like, you know, hey, get down to like two pairs of shoes or three t-shirts or whatever. Um, I, I, don't, I don't wanna get into that. But here's the question I want us to challenge all of us in is how much, I think it's just the wrong question to ask. The question is, how, how much do you want to experience more of the kingdom of God in your life? I think that's the question we should be asking. The question is, how, how, much do we, how much do we want, is that our inner focus? Is that what our heart's oriented towards? Is that what our heart is pursuing? Is, is I'm seeking first the kingdom of God. And what then am I willing to let go of so that I can arrange my life in order to experience more of that in my life. I think that's the question Jesus is trying to get at with simplicity, is, is first challenging us, is our inner focus in the right thing? And then are we arranging our life for that? And, and some people had all the arranging their life, but they missed the inner focus. 
Like there was Pharisees who tithed, who did all these sorts of things, but Jesus said, like, your heart is far from me. So it's about having the right inner focus with the lifestyle. If you have those two things supporting each other, uh, that's gonna keep you on God, experiencing more of God's life and his kingdom for you. And, and my experiences, and I'm sure many of you have experienced, is when you have that, when you have those two things going for you, the sense of lack tends to fade away. Contentment becomes possible. And you, you can be with Paul and say, I've had experiences with, with plenty, and I have experiences with little. I can do all things with Christ. Because I have what I need to have. I've experienced God's provision and goodness despite all of that. So uh, I want to get to more on some things, but I think we need to, to think about the practice of simpl- simplicity. Um, and this is a practice that I have to be really intentional about. Like, uh, I'm, I'm a, I, I can be a pretty messy person, and my wife's like probably saying amen quite a bit. Um, but it's just realizing I need to declutter and organize and, and sell some stuff uh, just to not accumulate. And then lastly, the last practice um, I'm going to go through is he, he says specifically he what? Gives it to what? The poor. So this is the second for, uh, counterformational practice. It's what I'm going to call radical generosity, and specifically he, he mentions the poor. So if you think about if you sell stuff, if you accumulate more money, what can you do with that money? You can either buy more things, you, you can uh, use that money, in, uh, and, and a lot of that was a very relational culture, and so you could throw a party and, and use that as a way uh, to invite your friends, and, and it was almost seen, it could be seen as a way to, this is how you climb basically the corporate ladder is, hey, if I do this for you, then that means, guess what, you have to return the favor. You could create something where you could use that money, not necessarily to buy things, but to create some social things. But Jesus specifically said, give it to the poor. Give it to the poor. If you give it to them, they're not going to be able to pay you back. You're, you're using it as a way to trust in me and your provision. You're, you're sowing into the kingdom, or as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. And so he talks about uh, giving to the poor. This would, be in, this would have been pretty radical to just say, hey, I'm going to give, I'm going to sell things, things that could provide me security, and I'm going to give them to somebody else who can never repay me back. And he, he, this is what he says. It's, it's a, a way, a practice Again, where I'm going to reframe generosity in a sense. So as, again, about just arranging our life in order to, to focus on the things that matter. If, if this is what we truly believe, that this inner focus on seeking the kingdom, giving and radical generosity is a way to counterform what, what culture is trying to do. So we have a culture who, who's literally trying to take, take, take from you. They're trying to get as much out of you as they can to put it nicely, (laughs) but we have a God who gives, 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 and we live out of that counterformational practice to be reflective of that God and not be so sucked into the constant, I need, I need, I need, and so I think giving should be seen as a counterformational practice, again, to foster an inner focus of worship and trust in God, to support kingdom causes and missions. And the promise that Jesus says is, if we do that, 
then we have this, this reward in heaven that nothing could take away. That requires a certain level of trust, right? To say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off on this re- reward or this security or these certain things, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust in a heavenly reward. Because here's the last statement, because if you do that, that, if that becomes your treasure, if your kingdom is your ultimate treasure, guess where your heart's gonna be? That's where your heart will be. Your heart will be in internal things or it will be in temporary things. And this is, this is the invitation we have. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read one last scripture and I'm gonna give you some, some application. Some of you are like, can you just teach on tithing? That probably would be a lot better. Um, just let me do my one thing with my, 10, or, you know, my 80 to 90%. Anyway, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says this. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. I want you to think about, remember, look at set their hope, think about inner focus on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. That word life, can you guess what type of life that is? Do you think it's bios? Do you think it's psych? If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. If you, it's, it's zoe, it's this eternal life. That these are practices you can incorporate in your life. The, the focus to pursue a, a self-focus on the kingdom, but also adopting and arranging our life on a lifestyle of simplicity and radical generosity. And here's the thing, here's, so, um, here's, what, here's my like, application for you all, is to study the Super Bowl commercials, begin becoming aware of how they're trying to influence you, all right, then go buy Doritos, I guess. Um, second is do experiment, try this. Like, do you think most of us could probably sell something in our house for 50 to 100 bucks? I would imagine most of us could, and then give it away to the poor, to a charity, to somebody you know is in need, and just see what it does to your heart. Just do it as an experiment. Like, do it as an experiment. Maybe this week, the next coming months, like, uh, I've heard some people say, like, you know, put a tag on certain things, and if you don't use it within, like, a six-month period, be like, okay, I'm going to sell it. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, Take that thing and I'm gonna sell it on you know, Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or whatever and then give the money away. And I, if Jesus' words are true, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna bank on Jesus' promises that if we do that, we're gonna experience a, a different kind of joy. We're gonna experience a, a different kind of joy. And the, the words of Jesus out of Acts 20, we would experience the promise, right? It's, it's, blessed, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And that's what's cool, is science backs it up. That they've done studies where they've taken two groups of people, they've given them $100, or I can't remember a specific amount, and the one group, they said, here's $100, go spend it on yourself, buy anything you want, and the other $100, you have to, you're required to give it away to somebody in need, and then they, they come back and they do assessments on well-being and joy, and study after study says those who give the money away are far more grateful, um, happier, because they practice generosity. And so let's 
try this, right? Uh, I'm, uh, try to think of some things that you could sell or get rid of and then give it to somebody um, in, in need. And here's my hope. So I'm, this is what I'm banking on, uh, is that you discover that, you experience the joy of it, and then you're gonna like, I wanna do more of this in my life. And here's the thing, I know some of you in here, you are extremely generous, so don't see this, don't feel like, uh, you're like, oh, here it is, they're just trying to give, get more money out of me. Uh, you know, that's not the heart of this. If, again, if, if, if it feels like manipulation, that's not good news. Does that make sense? Like, it, it, Paul's very clear, like, he loves a cheerful giver. And so, what I, my hope is, as you experiment and as you do this, it creates a joy where then you want to arrange your life around it. You may even go arrange, I'm going to arrange my budget around it. I'm going to arrange and, and put some things in my life because I want to make this a part of my life because I want to continue to steward my heart where the self-focus is on, on God and his kingdom. And so, again, um, I'm going to highlight like I did last week because some of that budgeting and doing that sort of thing is, is hard for some people. And so we have a financial class that we're going to promote this week and next week. Um, Tim helped put that together, Phil and some, a team, Paula, um, they, they put this class together and it's very, the goal of this is to be very relational and just to give you some things to help you with this because I would assume most of us, um, whether we want to admit it or not, could use some help with this. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great resource we're trying to create for us. So if you want to sign up for that, go to events.lancastervineyard.org.